Hello, and thanks for downloading Room 14 of The Reading Room from Siren FM. On this edition, we have not a film critic, but the film critic. It seemed that the experience of going to the cinema was less and less to do with watching a film and more and more to do with being sold a, you know, a bunch of stuff you didn't want. We have a comedian, turned author, turned filmmaker. I wouldn't say to anybody, what you want to do is you want to get involved in making a lot of films if you want to spend a lot of time with your family, children <laughs> and friends. And we have a science fantasy author. I think we all like to know what is the universe all about, you know, what what is the whole point to it, because I think with, with human beings, you know, we need to see a point to everything. The Reading Room on Siren 107.3 FM. Now, it gives me great pleasure to welcome down the line Mark Kermode to The Reading Room. Uh, Mark, thanks very much for taking the time to speak to us. Mark, your book is The Good, The Bad and The Multiplex. What's wrong with modern movies? Now, for last month's programme, the whole Reading Room team went to the cinema to review one day in order for us to review the book, but also the adaptation. Now, while we were there, I took a photograph that you very kindly retweeted for us. Uh, It was a sign near the empty ticket desk that read... Box office is currently closed. Please purchase your tickets from retail, with a great big arrow underneath pointing to the place where you buy popcorn. Now, this picture would sum up a chapter in your book, wouldn't it? It does. In fact, funnily enough, when I saw that, I I retweeted it because it it chimed exactly with with something I'd been going on about in the book. I mean, one of the chapters in the book is about going to a, a multiplex and having the kind of classic bad multiplex experience. And it begins after having spent some time messing around online, attempting to book tickets and being charged booking charges for the privilege of doing it, of turning up at the multiplex and there being a massive queue to buy tickets because they had somehow amalgamated the ticket sales with the popcorn stand. And it seemed that actually in the end selling the confectionery was more important than anything else. And during the radio show that I do with Simon Mayer, we had loads of people writing in and complaining about exactly this, that it seemed that the experience of going to the cinema was less and less to do with watching a film and more and more to do with being sold a, you know, a bunch of stuff you didn't want. And then the film being projected badly in an unmanned auditorium with no projectionist to look after to the quality of the film and all they really cared about was making sure that you're left with a vat load of uh, popcorn which made their profits and that picture just seemed to sum it all up i mean funnily enough i've got a collection of pictures that people have taken in cinema foyers one of them we got sent to the radio five show which is a, a sign which said warning harry potter seven part two is a very dark movie and what they meant was it's dark you know fine thematically yes but they meant it's really dark because of course it was a film that was retrofitted into 3d and it was shot with a very moody sort of bergman-esque palette and when you put the 3d glasses on it's really dark but not in the way that that i think that the, the, the filmmakers had intended there's another sign which i love which was a photograph taken in the phoenix in east finchley and they only sell a few sort of sweets and that sort of things. But there's a sign over the crisps that says, sorry, too noisy for the auditorium. You're only allowed to eat them in the foyer. <laughs> oh, how fantastic. Yeah, that's a proper cinema. Currently in Lincoln now, we uh, we do have kind of a protest. There's certainly a, a large Facebook group uh, gathering over Lincoln now being £9 a ticket, which is the, the third highest in the country for that particular chain. And yeah. it certainly doesn't reflect in the wages in in this area. It's, it's more to do with uh, there's no, uh, no other alternative. I think what's happened with multiplexes, and I mean, people are accuse me of just being generally biased against multiplexes. I'm not. I mean, I'm no more biased against multiplexes than I am against supermarkets. You know, there is a time and a place for them. And, you know, heaven knows that if the only thing near to you is a supermarket, then you're going to use the supermarket. The problem is, in an ideal world, you'd have the option between, you know, frequenting a supermarket or frequenting your local village store, which was selling homegrown produce as opposed to prepackaged ready meals with millions of air miles on them. My problem with multiplexes is, 
if they're the only show in town, then that's a problem. And the other thing is that if you are going to see a movie in a multiplex, you should demand that the movie is shown properly at £9 a ticket. It's not enough to show the film in an unmanned auditorium where people are misbehaving and where the film is projected badly and there's no projectionist there to correct it when it is projected badly. I mean, the idea that you can run a cinema, a multi-screen cinema, without projectionists is as baffling to me as the idea that you could run a garage without mechanics. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. Of course, in, in the history of cinema, the projectionist was the most important person because if the projectionist didn't do their job properly, the theatre would burn down. Now, we seem to have come full circle. I mean, yes, you know, safety film pretty much took away the fire hazard element, but the, the projectionist art was still seen as the end point of filmmaking. Stanley Kubrick would write letters to the projectionist saying, look, we've spent ages trying to get everything right on Barry Lyndon and now you're the last piece of the jigsaw. So can I just tell you that this reel is a little darker than that reel and there's a this at the beginning of that, you know. The, the projectionist was part of the movie-making process. Suddenly, with the rise of digital projection and the preponderance of multiplexes to the detriment of, you know, more bijou, independent art house cinemas, the idea came about that you don't need projectionists anymore. You just have somebody with a mouse clicking go and let the movie get on with it. Well, mm-hmm. that's not cinema. I mean, here's my question. If you go to a building and it doesn't have a projectionist, but it does have a fast food stand, why is that a cinema? That's not a cinema. That's a sweet shop. It's a sweet shop with a video screen. Sorry, that's what it is. I mean, obviously, since you've just brought up, the, your, I, I know you, I think your favourite cinema is the uh, the one at East Finchley. The Phoenix in East Finchley, yeah, formerly the Rex, of course. When I started going to it as a kid, as a kid it was the Rex. It's now the Phoenix. Yeah, so what does that building mean to you? Well, everything. I grew up in there. I mean, it's really funny. You know, people say... Do you remember your old houses? Do you remember the bedroom you lived in? Do you remember that sort of stuff? I don't really. I remember the Rex. I spent every free moment in that cinema. And I've, you know, I've seen it through umpteen renovations. And I'm, I'm very proud I'm now a patron of it, which seems to be you know, patently absurd to me. I mean, my handprint is in the concrete outside it. If you said that to me when I was a kid, I would have just laughed at you. <laughs> but you know, what it means to me is it's the place that I saw all the films that were significant when I was in my formative years. You know, that's where I saw The Devils. That's where I saw The Exorcist. That's where I saw the John Waters movies. That's where I saw the George Romeros. That's where I saw the Cronenbergs, the David Lynches. You know, that's where I saw Rocky Horror. And it was the place that I felt was most like home. Yeah, and it seems you're not just doing your part uh, for, the, for the Phoenix East Finchley, but actually if you, if you look at your upcoming book tour, uh, you're going mainly to picture houses. Picture houses have got involved in a number of those dates, which has been great. You know, we've worked with them before and I like them very much. And, um, you know, the idea was to go around and talk about cinema, it, what people's experiences of cinema is. And, and as I said, I mean, I do stress this, I'm not, despite the way that I get portrayed something, I'm not just some elitist snob. Somebody said to me, your problem is that what you think is that we should all go back to watching black and white silent movies with live musical accompaniment. And actually, a part of me went, well, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) because I love black and white silent movies with live musical accompaniment. In fact, I play in a band that provide live musical accompaniment for black and white silent movies. That's what we do. The Dodge Brothers, of course. Yeah, the Dodge Brothers, and that's one of the things I love. But that's not everything. Also, this idea that I have something against blockbusters is patently not true. You know, my favourite movie of all time is The Exorcist, which is a blockbuster. It cost, it cost millions, it made millions. It was seen by everybody and it was the biggest film of the year. It was the Titanic of its day. You know, my favourite film of two years ago was Terence Davis's Of Time in the City, but my favourite film of last year was Inception. It's a $200 million Hollywood blockbuster that just happens to be really good. 
I mean, they've always been bad blockbusters, but recently it kind of got to the point that there was a rule, which was you can only make bad blockbusters. You can't make intelligent blockbusters because you'll lose money. It's just not true. You look at Inception and go, okay, fine. So that puts paid to that once and for all. Being intelligent will not lose you money. So if you can make money, whether your film is stupid or intelligent, why not make it intelligent? People aren't stupid. It's just that Hollywood bosses think they are. I mean, in the end, you know, you vote with your feet. But I think we all got used to a level of, you know, institutionalized corporate dreadfulness that we just kind of all took for granted. We'd all be sitting there watching, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean 3, <laughs> thinking this is awful, but then thinking, but this is what cinema looks like, right? Why should I complain? I take your point. Certainly on the Pirates of the Caribbean, I came out of that feeling very confused and thinking, well, I should have liked that, shouldn't I? We, we just all started to think, is it me? Is it me? You know, if surely that's, that's what blockbuster entertainment looks like. As I say in the book, I was guilty of the most atrocious act of humbug when Pearl Harbor came out, and I said, well not that bad you know i mean which, what was i talking about but i somehow i had convinced myself that well this is what blockbusters look like you know it's not that bad of course it is that bad it's terrible you're listening to the reading room on siren 107.3 fm offset cancel the milk set the alarm tell the good neighbors i've come to new harm i'm off on my travels a gap year or so and where i will end up heaven may know As a leaf blown in Freetown past a mossy round stone, I plan to be wayward, so where will become home? I'll talk to the natives, fit in where I can, take on board their suggestions as part of my plan. When the spirit is restless and there's chaff but no wheat, then I pick up my rucksack and toughen the feet. The call of the highway, the lure of the dale, with the wind in my face, I am forced to prevail. It's a dangerous lust, this wandering about but to stand on a mountain whose beauty you shout. It's a short life, that's certain, so no putting it by. There's worlds out there waiting, so do it, don't just try. That's Offset by John Welsh, and we're going to have more of his travel poems over the next few programmes. Later in the programme, in our interview with Tony Hawkes, we're going to discuss the way he's released his film version of Round Island with a fridge onto the internet. Uh, But now, in this second part of our interview with Mark Kermode, he tells us why he believes multi-platform releasing is the way to beat the pirates. Multi-platforming releasing is the way forward, and, and you can complain about it as much as you want. It's happening right now, whether you like it or not. People are downloading movies on the internet, even as we speak. You have a choice. You either embrace that and say, okay, well, let's use this. Let's you know, do what the music industry did, which is said, fine, okay, that's going to be a way that movies are going to be released. For those who want it that way, let's deal with it. Or you can do what the movie industry has done, which is to insist that critics hand over their mobile phones when they go into screenings. In the, in the, you know, I was talking to a security guard the other day at a screening, and he had those uh, night vision goggles, right? I said, have you ever caught anyone pirating the film even though be stupid <laughs> piracy happens within the industry that's how primary piracy happens i mean okay there's you know there is a certain market for films that are shot on video camera in cinemas in some territories largely not in the uk it has to be said yeah. that's not the source of piracy most pirates come from within the industry yeah. everyone knows that yeah. i mean look wolfman was available online in an unfinished version that didn't come from somebody pirating a screening that came from within the movie business. So what I was saying was, look, this being the case, and since cinema distribution has become such a problem recently, just get with the program. If people want to download movies, let them do it. Let them do it legally and day and date. And if people want 
to go to a cinema to watch a movie, let them do that too. That way, the people who are in cinemas will not be bothered by the people who'd rather be watching it on mobile phones. And the people who are watching it on mobile phones will have paid for the privilege of downloading it onto their mobile phone. They can go, they can go about their business. I'm not saying that you have to do one or the other. I mean, I like to watch movies in the cinema. There are other people who prefer to watch them on, a, on their iPod. Let, fine, let them get on with it. Yeah. Th- these two things can exist hand in hand. But people say, well, cinemas will lose customers. In my opinion, the cinemas that will lose customers is the multiplexes that aren't offering anything special. And the cinemas that will keep customers are the cinemas that actually go, yeah, we know you could watch this at home, but there's a reason to come and watch it here because we're putting on a proper cinema experience and we're treating it like it's a performance rather than a showing. Yeah, exa- exactly. Now, now, critics of any genre are often taken against and uh, usually by those they've criticised. They criticise as uncreatives. And uh, now you've taken a chapter in your book to, to sort of analyse this. And, a whole chapter. <laughs> and, and, and sort of ask, what, what are film critics for? Um, so what is a film critic for? I begin and end the chapter with exactly that question. And I think of all the chapters, it's the one which, which ends up the least resolved. I think what that chapter does is concludes what they aren't for. And they're not for affecting box office and they're not for telling you what to see. I think in the end, proper film criticism involves some things which are immutable. You know, I want the person who does it to have seen more films than me. I want them to be able to con- to describe the movie, to contextualise the movie, to analyse the movie perhaps, to tell me which other films I might want to see if I'm interested in this film. And if you're lucky to do it, you know, with a song dance and a bit with a dog and, you know, and make it funny. I think I come up with seven rules. A critic like Kim Newman hits all of those, and I, I on a good day, will hit five of them, but you know, more often than not, two or three, but at least I know what I'm aspiring toward. But in the end, the point of criticism is criticism. It is what it is. It's an honest reaction to a film that should be informed and intelligent and erudite and should be entertaining to read. I mean, when I grew up, I read film critics partly you know because i like i liked reading film criticism and partly because i you know i wanted to know what other films i should be looking for and partly because i just wanted somebody to say this is a remake of this other film and this other film is available you might want to go see that instead you know <laughs> so i think that that's what film criticism is for but beyond that it is criticism that is i don't mean criticism as it criticizes things i mean criticism in the proper sense of the word it's a response to i mean you know me telling you that Pan's Labyrinth is the best film of the year is criticism. It, that's what I think. That's my honest critical response. Nobody else may share it, but that is what I think. Um, I don't think you were too far off the mark there. Um, <laughs> well, good. But you've been known to reconsider films, haven't you? Like uh, I, mean, I can think of two, for example, uh, either Blue Velvet. And yeah. you, recently, you've gone back to see The Big Lebowski as well. Yeah, I did. Although, funnily enough, with Big Lebowski, you know, I was I was being asked to do that, you know, over and over and over again. People in block up saying, "Go see it again. Go see it again." You know, I think what they thought was that I'd have the kind of Pauline conversion that I had the second time I saw Blue Velvet. In fact, I saw Big Lebowski again, and my response was. Well, it's kind of the same way I felt about it the first time. I'm, I'm not a huge fan of that film. I do think it's baggy and ill-disciplined, and it's like the Blues Brothers. It involves an awful lot of goodwill. But I did go back and watch it again and give it a second go. And in that particular case, I thought, well, I still pretty much stand what I said, said about it the first time. I just enjoyed it more the second time. That was all. 
One of your favourite phrases I've noticed is that there are things in it, and I think a lot of the time there it, are it, things in it. Yeah. Even in even in an awful film, you can you can pick up on you, you you can still pick out parts in it that you can see perhaps where they were coming from uh, or where they were going, and see perhaps the good intent there. Nobody's ever said that before, but you're quite right. I do use that phrase. There are things in it, and when you say it like that, it sounds like the stupidest thing anyone ever said. <laughs> but, but you're right. Yeah, there are things in it. I see. Now we like to look at the writing process a little here on the reading room. Now you've been writing articles and things like that for a long time um, what's the difference in that kind of thing and then going the, the long haul on a, on a book like this oddly for me i started the other way around i did a phd at manchester university about modern horror fiction and a phd is basically a ninety thousand word essay so that was the first you know long form thing i ever wrote and it, it has occurred to me i've written two books now and they're both ninety thousand words long which is the same length as the phd in the end, the rules are basically the same. It's to do with, with structure and discipline. On pretty much the first page, you use the word listen, and you use it in, ex- you know, in a very exclamative way. It gives you the voice that we hear on Radio 5 Live, I think. Well, that's kind. I'll tell you where I stole that from. <laughs> I stole that from Kurt Vonnegut. Kurt Vonnegut, in Breakfast of Champions, and indeed in many other books that he wrote, uses that device that saying, listen. And I love Vonnegut. When I was growing up, the people I read, I mean, apart from The Great Gatsby and Fitzgerald, who I just thought, always thought was, you know, just... You know, you know that when Hunter Thompson, when he couldn't write, he would sit down and transcribe The Great Gatsby. That's what he would do. That's how he'd practice writing. He'd just transcribe Fitzgerald. What I did was I just stole a trope from Kurt Vonnegut, <laughs> which the trope was saying, listen. And actually, the funny thing is, I do it in speech now, but I do it because I grew up reading Brexit Champions and Kurt Vonnegut. And The Good, The Bad and The Multiplex, What's Wrong With Modern Movies is available now and published by Random House. The Reading Room's 101 Books to Read Before You Die. Hello, this is Karen Maitland. I'm the author of The Gallows Curse and the book I would like to recommend is The Power and the Glory by Graham Greene. The Power and the Glory, to me, is one of the most amazing books ever written where the hero, or rather the anti-hero, is the most unattractive character you can possibly imagine. He's a drunken priest who has bad breath, ulcers and is a a bit of a let. And to have constructed an entire book around somebody like that and make it so captivating, so moving and so tear-jerking, I think is absolutely amazing. The description of Mexico where this book is set is incredible. You really feel that you're there even if you've never been there. And I think the most amazing thing about this book is that it covers a period of history which which we know very little about when the priests were so badly persecuted in Mexico and I think it's just one of the most powerful books ever written. Now, as plans are made uh, for next year's Lincoln Book Festival and our involvement in it, uh, we've got a short story now from one of the stars of The Reading Room Live from this year. Uh, Time to put your feet up and have a biscuit and a brew as Louis Malloy reads Dillinger. Polly laughed and clasped her hands every time she came to the end of one of her bland anecdotes. Anna Campanus didn't laugh, but she knew that Polly was too far gone in love with the man to care about the truth of his violent life. Polly could get what she deserved, and Anna Campanus would get what she deserved, a judicial pardon allowing her to tear up the deportation papers. John ate two ice creams, said Polly, and here came that tinkly laugh again. I could hardly finish mine. It was a Sunday, with so much of this fudge sauce, which was delicious, but my goodness... She patted the stomach beneath a long blue skirt, which looked like satin. I was ready to burst, but he gobbled down too. I said, you'll explode. And he said he was full for now, but he would have a steak later when he was hungry again. And he did. Though I didn't have dinner with him. He had dinner with some of his business associates. More laughter trailed the story, and Anna nodded and thought about the business associates. 
She had seen them just once, by chance, when she was running to catch a train. They'd been gathered outside an office, with their hats all worn the same way, pulled low so that their eyes, especially John's dark and intense but meaningless eyes, peered into daylight. She wouldn't have thought of these men as businessmen. Not as thugs, perhaps, but somewhere between the two types, and nearer to thugs, because there was more of violence about them than business. John might well have seen her. She suspected that he was very observant, seeing without seeming to look, but he made no greeting, and she was glad of that. She had felt nervous, even though she hadn't thought about reporting him at that point. Since then, she had met him a number of times, but always with Polly, and he had been plausible as the man who shared ice cream and adolescent love talk and stupid laughter with her. Shall we go? said Polly, twirling around so that her skirt came up above her knees. She was pretty, that was all, not characterful, whereas John was definitely characterful, even when he dallied with Polly, and possibly handsome in a way which was more masculine than Anna preferred. Fine, said Anna. You look nice. That's a striking dress. It was an orange dress with white panels down the sides. It didn't compete with Polly's expensive skirt, probably satin, probably bought by John. Anna's dress was striking, but not pretty. It didn't need to be. It just needed to be recognised, so striking was right. They walked out of the apartment block and down to North Lincoln Avenue. It was a warm evening with no breeze, and Polly walked slowly, holding Anna lightly by the arm and pointing out stores and coffee houses and restaurants. That's where he had the steak. He told me that's where he usually goes with his business associates. They have a back room and the steaks are really good. She looked at the menu in the window for a while. That's a good price for a steak. Not cheap at all, but a good price. Sometimes you can pay really absurd money for a steak. Do you eat steak? said Anna in a manner which was lighter and kinder than she felt. You usually only have such small portions. I don't, Anna, no. I don't often eat steak, but I tend to look at the prices on a menu. I know I shouldn't really, but I do. They walked on, Polly smiling at everything and everyone, holding up a face to the late sun. Here we are, said Anna, when they came to the Biograph Theatre. Oh, look at it. I love it. Don't you? Yes, said Anna. And in fact she did. The wide lobby and the glazed terracotta, and especially the grand staircase inside. She thought it was a wonderful place. She liked all movie theatres, more than any other buildings. This was where she had met Polly, and it was what had brought them together. Their tastes in movies were not the same, but they shared the joy of going into the big theatres, which were so much more luxurious than anywhere else, even when the movie itself was no good. Tonight's movie had Clark Gable in it, which was good for Polly, and it was about gangsters, which was good for Anna, and probably for John too. There's John, said Polly. She waved joyously, though he was only twenty yards away. He looked up, and Anna felt sure that he'd already noticed them, really. He came across, with a grin which was wide but showed no teeth, and made his nostrils flare. Darling, he kissed Polly on the cheek as she looked heavenwards. Anna? He smiled at her, too. There was nothing malicious in the smile, but she was nervous. John bought tickets, and they went into the lobby. Ice cream, said John. Polly shrieked with laughter. What? Oh, I was telling Anna just a while ago about you and the Sundays. You remember when you ate two? Right, well, I like Sundays. And if you're hungry, why not have two? He grinned again, and now his small straight teeth did show, and it looked as if he was talking about something much more criminal than eating Sundays. Why not, if you got the money? He bought an expensive ice cream for each of them, without asking what they wanted. Anna would have been irritated, but it was a trivial matter, and anyway, she liked what he had chosen. She was surprised that she felt so hungry, and was actually looking forward to it. The movie was a disappointment. 
Anna didn't concentrate, and she was aware of John and Polly, holding hands, whispering to each other occasionally. John was watching the film, and looked as though he was enjoying it, but his expression never changed. Whether the scene was meant to be emotive or tense or just filling in the story, he sat there, quite straight-backed and respectable, with a more or less agreeable smile. The music bounced between the walls of the theatre, and the dialogue was loud even when the moments were tender. Anna tried to lose herself within the loudness and amongst the huge figures on the screen, but she couldn't, and she held the fingers of her left hand in a clump with her stronger right. She squeezed and felt like she was holding her breath until the movie ended. They watched the credits, and then John said, OK, let's get out of here. The shock which Anna had been waiting for arrived, and she was shaking when she stood up. She was glad that the other two were still so wrapped up in each other, because she was sure that her body was betraying her fear in a dozen ways. It was still quite dark in the theatre, so she hoped that she could hide the bright panic in her eyes. Their progress to the exit and then back to the lobby felt so slow that it might have been choreographed. John walking in his confident but oddly graceful way, as much like a dancer as a boxer, Polly holding his arm so tightly that she was nearly hanging off of him. They went out of the theatre and Anna smoothed down her orange dress. Purvis would be looking out for the orange dress and she tried to make it stand out, though she knew that smoothing it down would make no difference at all. Polly had said it was striking. Thank God for that. Thank God it was a striking dress. Anna was breathing deeply now and she could feel the movement of her heart. Purvis was standing across North Lincoln Avenue with at least a dozen other FBI men. Anna couldn't believe that they looked so conspicuous in their dark suits and their hats and some of them even in sunglasses at such an hour. It was as stupid as the movie she had just seen. It was stupid. That's all she could think. The street, the whole city, seemed to shrink and now this was the only scene taking place with all the energy of the world, all the fear and excitement and importance concentrated here. She moved to the left. Watch out! She shouted to Polly. She had planned to say that. Polly was supposed to think that Anna had just happened to see the FBI men earlier than everyone else. Polly stumbled away from John, who shook her off his arm anyway. Maybe it was a final act of grand chivalry, or maybe he was preparing to defend himself. Purvis was the one who fired, straight at John's heart, and then as John swivelled around, twirling rather like Polly had twirled less than two hours earlier in the satin dress, Anna was sure that it was satin now, John would have bought it for her, and he wouldn't buy anything fake. Purvis shot him through the back of the neck, and the bullet went straight through and out from underneath his eye. Anna looked, fascinated for a moment by a bullet going clean through the head, and then Polly screamed and everything turned to chaos. The FBI men came forward and surrounded John, who was as still as the figures on the posters. It could have been a publicity event for one of the movies. He lay on the ground, face down with blood coming from his head, though Anna was sure that it was the first shot which had killed him, just by the way his body had jerked and stiffened, as if he had been electrocuted. All around them people shoved their way past each other to get a look. Anna tried to keep Polly away, but she rushed forward with such hysterical strength that it took three of the men who worked at the theatre to restrain her. Then the police arrived, and almost at the same time the press. Purvis from the FBI flashed his badge and spoke to the police, but they kept talking to him as if they didn't trust him or didn't want to appear to follow his orders. The men from the press buzzed around and asked everyone if they had seen anything and made rapid pages of notes in their inbound pads. Anna pretended to be too distressed to be able to talk, but they kept coming because someone had identified her as one of the women with John. I don't know, she said to every question. I don't know, he was just shot. She hoped that Purvis wouldn't speak to her. He had said he wouldn't, but she hoped that he wouldn't even try to murmur anything. The crowd was almost like a mob now. 
There was no sense of a fugitive brought to justice. John's status as an outlaw hero was being confirmed with every new person who arrived, with every camera shot. She even saw a few people dip handkerchiefs in the blood before the police herded them away. Finally, barriers were put up and the crowd began to disperse. Polly was being sedated and someone was going to take her to hospital. Purvis looked over at Anna and she gave no acknowledgement. She knew that she had to go to a government office the next day, the address of which she had memorised and not written down, and then they could start on the administration to get the deportation charge dropped, though something in the way he looked at her, something in the way the whole business had been handled, told her that she had almost certainly been duped and that she would be leaving the country anyway. Finally she walked away, still shaking and quite exhausted now, looking out for journalists who might be waiting to force a quote out of her. She looked back at John, who they had left lying there for a long time, allowing anyone to take his picture. She could only see the side of his face, but the expression looked exactly the same as it had in the theatre, as if he had got over the shock of being shot and was now unperturbed by anything. He was there for anyone to photograph, to characterise, to imagine as their friend or outlaw brother. The adoration had started. She was the woman in the orange dress, the third member of the party, already caught in dozens of photographs. The idol was dead, and the people had dipped their handkerchiefs in his blood. She gets too hungry for dinner at eight. I'm starving. She loves the theater, but she never comes late. I never bother with people that I hate. That's why this chick is a tramp. You're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3 FM. Now it's time for The Reading Room book group to gather and share our collective wisdom whether you want it or not. On last month's programme, Room 13, we were lucky enough to interview the author Abigail Tartellin about her debut novel Flick and her publishers, the brilliantly named Beautiful Books, provided us with some review copies. Now, as ever, the wonderful Jill Hart is here to add some intellect to my meandering. Good morning, Jill. Good morning, Paul. Okay, and now Johnny's read this one too, but uh, his microphone's down today. Now, Johnny, I just, I just want a nod from the other side of the desk. Have you read one day yet? No, no, shaking his head. Still not read one day. Uh, I'm going to uh, force my copy through his letterbox this week. But before we start, here's an extract from Flick, read by the author. Space-time continuum walk back to school. In the way that only happens when you're in school and repeating the same monotonous routine every day, time runs away from me. It is difficult to understand how one day can seem so ridiculously slow, but months seem to pass where very little worth mentioning occurs. I'm sure in part it is due in this case to being young and in love or whatever you'd care to call it because when you're young the details matter so much and this creates a paradox. On the one hand, as you're watching for every detail you're very much in the moment. Time seems to go out the window and all you are left with after the affair is a rosy glow of something sweet, innocent and faintly remembered. A glow in which you happily bask. On the other hand, the tiniest moments can hurt like a knife, like seeing her hold someone else's gaze or break from your own, and become so important, burned on your retina, that it can become unbearable. Hence the pot, because we're also tortured. Sob. On a more general note, however, this seemingly simultaneous speeding up and slowing down of time appears often to come hand in hand with being in school. My hypothesis, since I know you're so interested, is that, in an education system largely based on exam results, there ends up being little to do for the rest of the year. This is also given that, if you're smart or have a good teacher, you tend to pass the exams, and if you're not and you don't, you're fudged. 
Thus, they pack the less important 11 months with pointless coursework that basically offers no sense of fulfilment. As we all know, most of the tax were set at utter crap, would never happen in the real world, and are geared solely towards proving yourself to an instructor and a certain system of grading, and definitively not towards proving to the individual his or her own worth, intelligence or ability. This, my friends, is why every year 11, though in particular the more able, just after receiving their results, become puzzled and bewildered over one question. Why is it that during the GCSEs everything is a struggle and you're up till 4am every night doing the work? I speak here for the people that actually do it. I'll not shy away from the fact that although I am generally up till 4am, I tend to be mostly <coughs> pleasuring myself and or watching two pints of lager and a packet of crisps. Then, in the exams, which you didn't revise for, you sat there worried you're missing the point because the supposedly hard questions seem very ABC level. Then on results day, you get way better grades than you thought you were going to get. Well, hold on to that curve you're graded on because I'm about to give you the holy grail of answers to this mother of questions. It is because, drumroll please, the level of knowledge and intelligence needed to pass a GCSE is very little. But the amount of work is mind-shatteringly overwhelming. And so, when people do not pass a GCSE, it's not because they're very thick, because they would have to be very, very thick to not realise they're repeating the very simple textbook answer to all the very simple textbook questions asked will get you full marks, but it is because they have not put in the hours to complete all the work. The work is incomplete more often than it's crap, and when it is crap, it's because it took very little time. And thus, whether it is laziness, a misunderstanding of this most basic principle of the curriculum, or whether you are just that little bit too stoned to find what you're reading or what you wrote coherent, the work piles up, you find yourself being chased down corridors by ancient cross-eyed women, Ms White, who the fudge do you think you're looking at, spitting on the cardians with rage because you haven't handed in a piece of work they knew you weren't going to do. They threaten you with suspension because there are only five lunchtime detention slots in the week and you've racked up 16 and then you find yourself doing more work than you planned on doing, you're working the man as, your hands are tied and suddenly two weeks of your life are dead and buried and you'll never get your misspent youth back again. GCSE students, here is my advice. Do the coursework, but don't do anything else. When exam time cometh, ask for a copy of the curriculum and revise from that, except for in English where you will need either to be naturally smart or to make notes. It will make little difference to your life in the long run. If you want to do anything academic, you will need a good degree. So work out which course you want to do, get enough to get onto it and then put in the work. Or choose one of the many different paths they never tell you about in school. I'm serious. You will never be 16 again. Throw caution to the wind, cast off the mainsail, do slash kiss the girls slash boys you always wanted to do slash kiss but never did. You know who I mean. And I hope you heed that sincerely meant advice. So, Jill, did you learn any new words? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I'm really the intended audience for this book, am I? So, yeah. OK, well, let's start where we normally start with this and look at the cover. Now, I think this cover, as I said in the interview uh, last month, is just absolutely fantastic. Mm. It reminds me, and this won't be a reference for you, Jill, but it reminds me of New Order's album covers throughout the 80s where it was just, you know, you, you would recognise it and go straight to a shelf. Uh, I and, think and it's pick very it well jacketed. It looks yeah. good, and she's she's obviously aiming for a teenage market and something that'll look different. Yeah. It looks different. The font inside is very different as well. Yeah, yeah, it is. It um, is actually. It's in uh, what you're not a font expert. I'm are not you? a font expert, are... but it, it's a different one and, and a slightly more um, less formal appearance of font than you would normally get. Yeah. Mm. Now then, let's have a look at the inside and the style of it. Now, uh, the style of the chapters uh, are, are very short and achievable, and for my mind, very, very page-turning. What do you think? Yes. I mean, she's obviously aiming at a teenage market. I think yeah. perhaps a teenage boy market. Yeah. And is trying to make it very accessible in that way. I thought it was 
I once I got going in it, I turned the pages quite readily, aware all the time that it wasn't being written for me. Um, but I, yes, I found it. It was it was okay. I thought it was a good read. I don't think it was high literature, but it's it. Um, yeah, it's not bad. It did the job. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, my point would be there mm. is that it just does. It doesn't have to be, and no. certainly to appeal to certain parts of my mind that is still not too far away from yeah. the teenagers. You know, we're we still we're turning up and playing Nirvana on the radio, so my mind is still wanting to be a teenage mm. boy mind. So there, there were certain sparks in this for me that just really clicked it off and uh, and and said, yeah, actually, mm. she, she's got it spot on about what it's what it's like to be a teenage boy. I get the impression that she's trying to be quite edgy and to make him quite a. Um, an edgy character and to make people really engage with him and from my point of view I kept thinking oh bless him you know but I think that possibly isn't quite what she intended uh, but you know your mothering instincts uh, well maybe not that but uh, (laughs) but again the use of the fact that she's using swear words and rough language all the way through once you've got used to that like you've got slightly used to the different font you don't read them that they're not the swear words aren't used to swear with mm. they are used as a general register of language so once you've once you've got used to that that doesn't really impinge on the reading experience i don't think yeah yeah but that's the, i mean that's the life i recognize and that's what i found very refreshing mm. about it it's just people people spoke the way that kids here on the street and when i'm mm. with my kids yes. i, I tut at those kids that are, that are speaking like that mm. but that you know that uh, um i've not been known to speak like that myself okay well let's look at the main character mm. flick i mean uh, you know did you did you find him likable i think i think so i think he's written to be likable yeah he is a joker he's a jester he's popular he's 15 and world weary which i think most people at 15 are but alongside the fact that he's getting involved in a in an underculture in a drug culture in all these sort of things he's got a a family relationship that's strong he's got a a father that's a bit dodgy but Mm -hmm. he's got um, a brother that is carefully written in i feel to balance out that and give him some family stability he loves his mum yeah, I thought he was likeable and I thought he was quite a sad character really as well. Sad, sad in what way? In the fact that he is very much trapped in this in the world that he is finding himself. He's obviously got the intelligence to know that there could be a better life than this. And he's also got the intelligence to know that he's not going to get it. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, the intelligence factor. Do you know what? If I, if I would put one flaw on this and, and, and think something that stuck out for me a few times when I was reading it, just at the fact I felt it was written... He was written too intelligent. You know, there was um, there's not as much naivety um, as 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 I as I know I felt. Uh, but then, I, I, well, I don't know. Yes. You're looking at me now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm just thinking about that. Um, I think when you're 15, you really do need to think you do know it all, or else you haven't got much chance of you. No, no, that's true. You know, and he does at the beginning. There's quite an interesting. Um, episode towards the end of the book where one of his his friends actually puts it on the line and tells him how it is and that he's going wrong and he gets very nasty with her he turns around on her and he becomes very nasty in a way earlier that he's has been suggested his father has been with him and at that point for the first time in the narrative you actually see this nice intelligent character that we're living in the mind of from the outside and from the outside he is not like that. He's obviously big and large and rough and is at that point nasty. So when you actually see him from the outside, he is very different from the character that he feels he is inside. And I thought that was quite an interesting yeah, an interesting view. It'd be, I, th- I think it would definitely be interesting to catch up with this character in five years' time and see where, you know, if he ever did get out 
or or probably not. No, no. <laughs> okay. no way out, is there? No, no, there isn't. I thought this actually the book, the bit that I actually did find sad. There was a sad line in the book, which I can't fully quote, of course. And he's talking to one of his friends. Um, they've had an idea about mate, making money by um, on the internet by doing animation films, which is a laudable enough idea for young boys to have. And they sit about, they talk about it, and they sit there for a bit. And then uh, one of them says, well, how does anyone get out of here? And the other one says, a word I can't say, if I know. And that is the point. They're, they they have not got a, an outlet. They have not got a way out. And the reason they haven't got a way out is is a good thing. What they've got within this this network of poverty and poor aspiration is they've got support and community and that's what holds them together is their their support their communities their families but the very things that are holding them together are the very things that are stopping them progressing Mm. which i thought was quite sad yeah and uh, we'll kick off this second part with uh, an email in from our regular reviewer kathy thanks kathy this is a really good debut novel and pinpoints many of the problems teenagers face in today's society it's a fast-paced story easy to read and a very topical subject though i initially found the constant swearing an obstacle i was soon drawn into the story I found myself willing to flick the main character to take a step away from the pitfalls of his environment and caring about what happened to him as he was drawn into the drugs and drinking culture that was prevalent in his peer group. Though there was much humour, the lack of opportunity and direction the characters had from the environment stayed with me long after I'd read the book. Uh, and I, th- I think that's a, a fair review there. Now, Jill, you, you wanted to bring something up about the environment that they were in. Yes, I think so. I mean, it's the setting is, what I would like to say as well, is that the setting is very well drawn. It's a an English seaside place, mainly out of season. Mm. And it's what we all know of English seaside out of season to look like. And it was very well done. I thought the sense of place was very good. On the other side, the environment that they're in is one of the words they use, he uses a lot in the book is malnourished. And the fact that these children are sinking into a, a drug culture and sinking into low aspiration and lack of hope, it seems to be very much tied into the fact that they are not able to feed themselves properly and it's it's they, it's a diet of crisps and chips and coke and yeah and that 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 seemed to have a, a level of the poverty trap to it that is obviously is there and that was i found quite moving yes yes certainly now i'm gonna uh, from our website as well we've had a message in from alison uh, her opinion is that flick is very poorly written the characters she says are paper thin and the plot is predictable and creaky uh, she says you can only you can tell she only spent a week on it tartellin's patronizing desire to get young boys reading is just tiring it's unbelievable that someone compared this to brett easton ellis uh, and there she's talking about the uh, the quotes that came from gq get we got a very good review in gq and various other uh, magazines now brett easton ellis i had to go because i think everyone knows my literary knowledge uh, for hosting a literary mm. program is, <laughs> uh, is is poor at best uh, so a, a trip to Wikipedia said that he was the chap that wrote American Psycho. Psycho. Of course. Um, What do you think to that, Jill? I haven't read him, I have to say. I don't think it's a bad book. I think for a first novel, it's it's certainly kept my interest. I think it's not bad at all. As I said earlier, not high literature, but... I don't think it's bad. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, this is yeah. where our programme, if, if I can just do a bit of self-promotion here, is uh, is, is, is is appealing to. And uh, we, we make a yeah. programme here to, to appeal to people to people like me that, um, you know, don't want to go for that high literary or, all the time. You know, I'm, mm. I'm, I'm partial to it, as you well know, but not 
all the time. And, and this actually, from, from reading various other books, was actually just a, a, a really nice break, uh, a dose of realism, humour. and yes. uh, a, a What it did for me, it did take me back to um, Graham Greene's Brighton Rock, which is also a group of young teenagers, or one teenager in particular, a, a gang set in a seaside place, a little bit dingy, sinking into crime, sinking into these things. And this was written in 1938. It is a classic, of course, and it reminded me very much of the setting there. Perhaps that's been some influence on the author. But the character in Brighton Rock, Pinky, is much nastier um, and much um, more sinister, really, although he's only a year older than Flick. But it did actually make me pick that up and read it again. And I think something that inspires you to links you into something else is is good i think that was it's a good link and i think something that would inspire that can't be that bad actually yeah yeah exactly i mean yeah. well would you i mean would you say, let's, let's talk about the high literature pick up on mm. that point would you would you say that book you've got there graham green brighton rock is high literature um it's certainly a literary classic i think sometimes they do it in school it's probably the best known of the graham green novels and it's the one that's i believe has been filmed probably more than once and it's again, it's quite accessible, and it's a, a nasty little underworld with a nasty little teenage boy character that is very, very readable even today. Considering it was written in '38, and that they're talking about racing and drink rather than drugs, which they're talking about here, mm-hmm. perhaps teenagers and, and teenage boys in the world haven't changed all that much in that time. No, no, that's certainly my opinion. Okay, so uh, let's do a quick round the table of flick. Are we going to say yes or no? Yes. Yes. Yes? Yes. That's a muted yes, but it's yes. definitely a yes. No, it is, yes. Okay, Johnny, just I want to nod or a shake of the head over there. He's got a <laughs> thumbs up, we've got a thumbs up. Uh, and yeah, and I'm definitely going to recommend it as well. Yeah. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Read it in a very short space of time, which for me is always uh, always good. And actually looking over at Brian Rock, that uh, looks like a short book as well. So uh, that, that makes my um, <laughs> my list, which is... <laughs> it's always on my first... I don't know why. I don't know why. Don't look at me like Never that. Never mind Joe. the quality feel the width, as they used to say on oh. TV many years ago. <laughs> Okay, now Jill, uh, just very quickly, what else are you reading at the moment? Um, I've been reading a lot of biography recently and thinking about children's writing. I've been reading a biography of Roald Dahl by uh, by uh, Donald Sturrock, which was which was marvellous, which was brilliant and uh, is going to lead me back into all the wonderful things like Matilda, I think. I need to pick them all up and read them again. Jolly good. Now, well, again, never a bad thing. Uh, I just uh, put down Chris Evans's autobiography, which, um, you know, again, not high literature, um, but I picked it up in one of those uh, bookshops where you can get, you know, sort of... Uh, well, I wouldn't say knocked off books because that'd be, but you know, remained it. Uh, that's the one. Is the word? Oh, that's a professional term. Well done, Jill. Uh, yeah, I picked it up for a couple of quid in there, and uh, absolutely worth uh, worth the money. I really, really enjoyed it. Very interesting uh, insight into the uh, the old Saxgate uh, thing from Inside Radio Two. Uh, extremely uh, worth a pick up if you're passing one of those shops. I, I, I would definitely get it now. Next month, uh, we're going to be reviewing uh, the Bees, uh, Carol Ann Duffy's first book since becoming poet laureate. Now, I think we all know how I feel about poet laureates. Uh, so I'm uh, I'm really looking forward to reading this and see if it represents uh, me in, uh, in 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 this country today or not or even if that's the aim of it I'm not exactly sure uh, and also we'll be we'll be examining poetry uh, a little bit closer over the next couple of months and uh, just go back Abigail Tartelli's book is available from Beautiful Books also available on Kindle. Hi, I'm Richard Herring, and you're listening to the Reading Room on Siren 107.3 FM. A coarse and unpleasant instrument. Recently I noticed Lincolnshire topped a survey of the best food in the entire nation, despite the fact that we only make a sausage. So this got me thinking, other than the infamous Lincolnshire sausage, what else is from Lincolnshire? 
Lincolnshire was historically associated with the Lincolnshire bagpipe, an instrument derided as a coarse and unpleasant instrument in contemporary literature, but noted as very popular in the county. The last player, John Hunsley of Middle Martin, died in 1851, and since then the instrument has been extinct. I think we should bring this instrument back. It's obviously overdue for a revival. How bad was it that its last player died and it became extinct? That's extinct. Not unpopular or overlooked, but actually extinct. How many other instruments have gone the same way as the dodo? Should there be a charity set up to try and protect these troubled creatures? Who's going to be next? Are the triangle's numbers dwindling to a worrying degree? Is the glockenspiel struggling to find food in the current climate? Do we need to try and get the washboard and the spoons to try and breed in order to keep them going? I feel a Facebook campaign coming on. That's uh, Jamie Mackay, The Musings of a Muddled Mind, and uh, obviously celebrating Lincolnshire Day yesterday. I bet he had a Lincolnshire sausage. Uh, I, I actually, I was in the town and I picked up some Lincolnshire beer, which uh, I'm going to go home and uh, experiment with later. Hello, this is Georgia Twynham, and you're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3 FM. Now then, comedian, best-selling author, and now filmmaker Tony Hawk started his tour, Random Fun, at the Drill Hall in Lincoln recently. I went along to the lovely cafe there, and over a cup of tea, we discussed how he turned his best-selling book, Round Island with a fridge into a film but first I asked Tony how the tour came about actually funny enough I was with my girlfriend and on holiday and I brought a load of DVDs with us and I found a DVD of the last time I'd gone on tour and done a show and we, she wanted to see it and I said oh god and then I watched it and I thought no I really want to do that again so it, it sort of little little fuse within me again and then I started writing things and uh, and now the, the tour begins tonight. Obviously, I mean, the title is such random fun mm. suggests you're just going to turn up and, and see. Yeah. Well, yeah, how, how strict well, is I've, it? How strict it, is it? I mean, I've got a running order, but you, I will obviously go off into tangents at times, and there's always bits of banter that happen with audiences and things. Depends if you can create the right mood. Audiences are quite free about calling out and getting involved. And of course, in the second half, I want to try and build in a, a Q&A section, question and answer, so I'll, I'll ask them to write down some questions in the interval. Uh, yeah, and, then, and that makes it as exciting for you, then, well, it the does, audience, yeah. doesn't it? So there, there is an element, I'm doing 32 dates on this tour, so I would think, you know, come the second half, you'd probably start looking forward to the, the Q&A, because you'd think, well, I've no idea what's coming, yeah. Yeah, and that's good fun unless they ask the same questions all the time. Yeah, I, well, I should, do you know what I should think? No, I should think you, you'll probably find regional variances. And for that section of your, of your show, your panel experience, or you mm. know, being on various panel shows, yeah. uh, and I, I regard yourself and perhaps uh, Sue Perkins as well, as yeah. being perhaps experts in that field. You know, <laughs> okay. um, always always a, a safe pair of hands, if you like. You know, something like that. Have you got a favourite panel show? Probably just a minute on, on Radio 4. They've always had me on, and it's the closest thing to belonging somewhere. Yeah. There's another good one called The Unbelievable Truth, which David Mitchell hosts. Yeah. So they're my favourites, and Just a Minute is my favourite because it's a, a parlour game, really. I played it as a kid, you know, used to listen to it with Kenneth Williams and uh, and, and, and to be doing it and getting away with it. Yeah. You just turn up. You don't have to do anything, really, yeah. except turn up and think, as long as I'm not... My brain's working, and I'm you know, on hopefully on good form. You just sort of wing it from there. So I watched Round Island with a Frizz this week, and uh, I'm a, a big fan of the book. Lots of friends are as well. Great. Um, so the first thing that hit me is, wow, how how will that work as a film? I mean, it, it, it seemed 
unnatural, like an unnatural film. But uh, yeah. obviously, you've put an, a narrative in there and, and yeah. some kind of uh, personal journey. Your character, for example, which yeah. you, you play, you play yeah. yourself very yeah. well. Um, really, sort of, it starts quite uptight, and then the, yeah. the character develops. How did the writing go for that? It was so difficult, partly for the reasons that you said. I mean, a lot of people enjoyed the book. The reason why I did it to, to start with was because I was just starting to get bombarded by producers who were saying, are the rights available, are the rights... So they wanted to make a film of it, and I, I hadn't ever thought of it as being a film, because it's very episodic. It's basically, you know, you go somewhere, meet some people, uh, have a laugh, don't ever see them again. Yeah. And I think what people don't realise is that, you know, that's, for a book, that's one thing, but when you sit down for an hour and a half, that won't be satisfying to you if you just don't ever see anybody. There's nothing to tie you in unless you're able to find some narrative strand for the main character, perhaps, that that would lock you in. And really, the problem with the book, um, which is that I make a bet saying, yeah, I could definitely do this. This is the one place in the world where you could do this. Mm-hmm. And then I go to Ireland and actually just prove that I was... Right, it probably is the one place in the world you do. So there's not a massive kind of... If that was my pitch to a Hollywood... <laughs> yeah. uh, he's going to say, get out, boy, go away, do some more work. Um, I want to see him change. I want to see him struggle. I want to see... So uh, that was difficult because it was... You know, everyone knows that it was me. Everybody knows that, that, that I've written a true story about it. So you've got to be careful what you change. So I thought, well, what I could do is play around a little bit with with me uh, and, and make me have to change as a result of the journey yeah. so it's an exaggerated me at the beginning which I'm not really like so, and, and I exaggerated that and then the Tony in the film has to change as a result of what happens to him in Ireland and you just do your best you know I mean it's rewrite after rewrite and then you still don't know at the end you still don't know when you're editing it and, and the fact of the matter is anyway a book and a film are just so different anyway that you can never really have something that's ultimately satisfying to somebody I think who's read it but the best thing is to say okay I'm now going to watch something a different entertainment inspired by that thing Yeah, last month on the programme we uh, we reviewed the One Day uh, film because uh, oh, I think all yeah. of us on the programme, yeah. uh, apart from the producer, hasn't read it yet, and you should. Um, I've read it as well, which is good. And, yeah, and I, have, you, have you seen the film? I haven't too? seen the film. No. So what, what did you think of the book? How, how did you do did you find well, it? Well, I loved the book, but I didn't like the ending. I didn't like the sort of... It, it, I was always thinking all the way through, I'm not sure how this is going to work out. And then it, it just seemed a bit of a... I better not say it for people that haven't... Uh, we, yeah, we have, we have yeah. a yellow card scenario in our studio <laughs> yeah. where someone's about to say an ending. Yeah, and yeah, no, yeah that's no, right, stop, yeah. Stop. But I didn't like the ending in the book. Um, and then when I heard they were making a film of it, I must admit, I thought, didn't seem film material, but, I, you know, no doubt they'll... they'll they, they've done know. it pretty well. And yeah. I, the, the one thing we spoke about was Anne yeah. Hathaway's accent, where she right. does a very good generic English accent, which right. sometimes drifts into Yorkshire. Yeah. I mean, this is part of the frustration I had with this, with the making of Round Island with the Fridge, is originally it was going to be made by Americans... And it was going to be Brendan Fraser playing the part of Tony, you know, the American yeah, actor. Yeah. And yeah, I was sort of thinking, well, it's not like we're short of talent in, <laughs> in the UK. Well, what on earth is Anne Hathaway doing, taking the job of an English actress? Yeah. How have we managed to be just so 
kidnapped by uh, the, the American movie industry. Really, it's, it's mm. just been a complete cultural takeover of a film. Yes, and you know, and you try and do it the other way, and then of course you're up against it because everybody says, "Well, who's in it?" And then you, you can't say Anne Hathaway, but mm. they've created that system because it serves them very well. The fact of the matter is, you know, we've all over the years got used to saying, and I do it as well, "Who's in it?" Yeah, it doesn't matter who's in it. If it's Brad Pitt, it's Brad Pitt pretending to be somebody else. Yeah. And if he can't do it very well, then we can criticise whoever the actor is. But the actors are not really the vehicles that make these things work. Some have star quality, but actually you could probably put 400 different people in the lead of a fantastic film and a fantastic script. And you know, There may be one or two people that have this magic, but most of it, to be honest, is we fancy the hell out of it. Yeah. Realistically, you know, I, I don't know Anne Hathaway or whatever, but I'm, I know that story and I know that there's hundreds of good actresses that you could put in it. Yeah. It'll stand and fall on how well it's put together, how well it's sh- shot, how well it's edited, really. You know, just it, does it tell a good story? And unfortunately, we're, you know, we're in this star system where yeah. they know if they create stars and they can get stars in them, they can make their money back even if they make a pile of old rubbish. Yeah. Right. Uh, you're streaming Round yeah, Island with yeah. a fridge at the minute uh, yeah. and then asking for a donation. Well, I must admit, it's come about as a result of sitting down with people and having to learn how this business works. And, and, and I'm in an unusual position of having sort of gone to people to make this film, friends of mine really, yeah. or people I know, and said, look, will you stick some money in? And they all did, and we haven't been making any back. So I sat down with somebody in the business who knows it very well on the inside, a sales agent, and he said, look, I'll, I'll be honest with you, most filmmakers, the actual makers of the film, the actual people that put the money in, if you have a film that makes a million pounds in the UK box office, they're not really going to see any of that. It's all going to get lost elsewhere. Yeah. And, and I, I'd have a sort of certain amount of loyalty to these guys, you know, and I didn't want us to end up in a position where whatever we do, there's no chance of them making their money back. So... By streaming it and doing this, the, the thinking is, well, look, we've got a worldwide market. So the book has done well in Holland, Germany, various other places. So we're thinking, well, if we, what we need to do is to stream it, get it out, and then try and find ways of getting messages out there so people know about it through using social networking. I hope people will recommend it. So we're about a week old with doing this now yeah. since we've launched, and it's actually quite promising. There's quite a lot of people donating quite generously in some cases and the DVD sales are going up as well so we're giving it a go and see what happens take it from there but obviously yeah. you've got uh, playing the Moldovans at tennis which is now in post-production yeah. is that right? I've actually funded that film myself like a complete idiot my <laughs> accountant said what are you doing and I said well I'm not worried about my pension this will be so as soon as I can recoup what I've spent on it uh, all the money from there will then go to this care centre that I've started yeah. that, features in the film anyway and I do think people will be quite generous when they see that because the story tells that story and if you touch people then uh, so maybe I'm a bit naive but I'm kind of optimistic that we could do okay on that if we get that one right 
exactly. Yeah. Well, let's look at your books and uh, sort of the, what appear to be sort of three quite wacky. Or, yeah. so wacky is a, I don't know. Is, how do you find? I think it wacky? is wacky. I accept wacky. It is. Yeah. <laughs> it's what it is. Wacky books, and then it seemed to me certainly in uh, Piano in the Pyrenees, yeah. it seemed like you were putting down roots and settling down. Yeah. Um, I mean, it worried me that that might be the last book you write. That's not the case, is it? No. I mean, I think I'd. It's a bit like doing this tour. It's like going back and doing something again. Um, I think I do want to do another wacky-ish book. It's finding the time, really. I suppose doing two films is is the, is is actually it's just so time-consuming because if you you've got to write them. In, in my case, you know, the second film, I've pretty much done everything in it, really. Mm. But a huge feeling of satisfaction, surely, if you own everything to it. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I think would I do it again? I don't know, <laughs> but I, I probably would at some point because I've learned so much from it. And and I think that's the thing. It's a light challenges. It has been enjoyable. I wouldn't say, say to anybody, what you want to do is you want to get involved in making a lot of films if you want to spend a lot of time with your family, children <laughs> and friends. I, you know, it's too, it's too much, it's too full on. And Tony Hawkes is on tour until December. Please check his website for the details. And the film of Round Island with a Fridge is available to watch online, roundislandwithafridge.com. And it's free to watch, but you just pay what you think it's worth afterwards. And I'm pretty sure you'll be dipping your hand in your pocket for it, like what I did. The Reading Room's 101 Books to Read Before You Die. And now it's time for the poet Brendan Cleary to recommend a book to add to our ever-growing list of must-read books. Book of Selected Poems by the poet Charles Simich. Because it's exciting, because the poems really do send you off in other directions and they're very, very strange but appealing. You're not really quite sure what they mean, but they mean something. It's the notion that uh, if you're not going to get what I, I'm going to say in this poem or what I want to say, you're still going to get something. Uh, they're mysterious and they, they really uh, stretch the imagination. Now we've met a lot of poets on this programme but he has the most striking voice and uh, I could listen to that all day. Now coming up soon we've got an interview with the science fantasy author Marie Harbin about 7.8, the first in a series of five novels. Uh, but before we do, here's a taster from the book. It is said that a long time ago our ancestors lived in a very different world from the one we inhabit today. We understood the language of the earth the stars, the sky people, and we knew of the number. Life was sacred and we lived in harmony with nature. But over time, we forgot all of this and began to feel separate from the earth and the stars. We became lost souls without direction and harmony was replaced with fear and distrust. The wisdom of the number was lost. Our love of material possessions now reflect our hollow satisfaction with ourselves and the world we inhabit. We built technology to enable us to remain connected to each other, made institutions of our most sacred beliefs and manufactured chemicals to heal our bodies and grow our crops. However, the further we wandered from our true selves in nature, the more unhappy we actually became. Yet, we retain a deep and hidden memory of everything that we ever were. There lies within us the hope that one day we can remember that sense of harmony and connection with the earth, the stars and the sky people. Life is a cycle and that which is lost will one day be found. That's an excerpt from 7.8 by Marie Harbin. And when Marie came into the Siren FM studios last month, I asked her what the novel was about. The idea was to take a peek into the universe because um, physicists are really sort of intently looking at 
what they call dark matter. They tend to sort of view the universe now as being 4% that we can actually see. So that kind of includes everything around us, you know, on this Earth and things like the planets and the stars. But that leaves like an awful lot of empty space, uh, which makes up about 96% of the universe. And the idea was to think about well, what's actually in that space, because there's got to be something there, because if you took it away, everything would just kind of collapse really into something like perhaps the size of a football. And there's a lot of interest in, you know, what is reality? What lies sort of beyond our normal physical senses? But I wanted to set it against a backdrop of people's lives because I think it's really important for people to connect with that experience through the lives of other people because we relate to human drama and, you know, things like love and betrayal and, you know, emotions that people feel and, we all like to feel like we're on some kind of journey and sometimes we all like to feel, you know, we, we have some sort of special destiny and I think I wanted to capture um, this sort of exploration of the universe through the lives of five people in particular and I wanted it to have, you know, quite an epic feel so that we begin the story around about sort of 1948 and we sort of move through the decades you know, and I wanted to capture, you know, a little bit of nostalgia in there as well, you know, give it a little bit of a retro feel. Primarily, most of the story does take place in the 60s. And I chose the 60s because it was an era of profound sort of sociological and and sort of cultural change. And I think the sort of concepts, the concepts of the story seem to fit better in that particular decade. I generally don't read a lot of science fiction. And I think this is very different. I, I'm, I, I love watching science fiction on television because it gives me all the answers and um, yes. uh, and that kind of thing. Whereas if I read a book, any, any kind of reading, you're always having to build a picture in your mind and that kind of thing. And I don't always do that very well. My fault. I accept it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but actually, I mean, what you're saying there is by you know put, putting these ideas and these concepts and relaying them through people you know I can relate to and situations I can relate to and a time I can relate to. Um, it, it seems to me like you, you, you're making something accessible to someone to someone like me. That was the the idea, really, you know, to take some concepts that, you know, are quite sort of, in a way, far out, you know, very sort of complex, but sort of bring them down to a level where people can relate to it. Because um, I think we all like to know what is the universe all about? You know, what what is the whole point to it? Because I think with, with human beings, you know, we need to see a point to everything. Yeah. And um, we sort of have this curiosity. But I think it's quite difficult when you watch a science programme because you just can't really sort of relate to some of the theories of that, that quantum physics. They can sort of go over the top of your head. And sometimes it's nice to present that in a way that is accessible to people. Now, looking back at this story, this story started out, I and mean, it's got a life of its own almost, uh, because it started out as a short story. It did, then yes. It, then it moved to novel length. Then you were looking at a trilogy. Now, you've actually decided now, or, or you, I'm assuming you, you, you've uh, put it through as a five-part five, five part series? That's right. Um, it's taken a long time to um, grow, because it did start out as a short story. So the idea behind the short story, you know, was about sort of accessing... 
um, other realities. But the thing is, um, it's not like you can actually physically travel there, you know, because we have physical bodies. Mm -hmm. And the idea is really that um, a a lot of the book is also about consciousness. And, you know, we we start to look at, you know, what is the soul and and what is consciousness. So I have used a little bit of science there, but I've also drawn from spiritual theory. But I've tried to take that spiritual theory and make it sort of grow up a bit, you know, so it doesn't sound sort of too sort of out there and sort of floaty angels. And, you know, I'm trying to sort of give it a little bit more of an edge, really. Yeah. And uh, obviously you've, you've set it in, in recent history. Now, uh, can we talk about how it, you know, how it evolves and concludes in the modern day? Or is that, that, I suppose that's to come in future books, isn't it? So It is, yeah. There's two distinct threads running there. Now, originally, um, what I've actually written here was actually the f- originally the first half of the book. But then um, I got halfway through that and, and realised that I'd already written a novel. And when I sort of looked at it, I thought, if I edit it too much, it's going to kind of kill some of the charm, really, because I think the important part of the story is is not just the actual plot itself, but it's about those people and the way those people interact. And I think that's very important for people um, to really sort of key themselves into those characters. And I think if I'd edited it too much, it would have lost something. So I decided um, just to, you know, allow it to expand and grow. You know, it is its own entity now. And it's got a fabulous cover. I've got, I've mm-hmm. got to say this. It really is a, a, an outstanding cover. If you walk through a bookshop, that is just going to smack you in the face. It's... it's extraordinary it is beautiful yes i did get anyway yeah i got very lucky with um with the designer and the the man's name is richard crooks and um he's such an intuitive and patient and and very sort of talented designer it was important to me to have a beautiful cover because i've put so much work into the story itself and it would let it down if there was something you know quite bland on the, on the front of it. Absolutely, I must ask. The, the phrasing of 7.8 is, is written, yeah. written out in, as in the, the spells out 7.8 rather than the, the numbers 7.8. Yeah, I think it just has more impact. Uh, I think it um, conveys um, a sense of, of that number being important and the, the number does mean slightly different things as you sort of move through the series but it will tie a lot of things together and the idea, you know, is basically that it is a number that connects everything and it is a number of great importance. Um, Okay, so 7.8 by Marie Harbin. How am I going to get hold of a copy? You can go through amazon.co.uk and there are quite a number of different sellers listed um, at different prices or they can be um, ordered directly from a website and it's also available on on the Kindle as well. This is Mark Kermode and you're listening to The Reading Room. Thanks for listening to The Reading Room from Siren FM. We'll be back with the live radio show on the 6th of November from 10am with a podcast available from the 8th where we'll be reviewing The Bees by Carol Ann Duffy plus our regular interviews, poetry and stories. And if you haven't already, then please vote for us in the European Podcast Awards. Otherwise, John Humphreys will win. And no one wants that. Not even John Humphreys.